Do you want to achieve the ultimate success in your business? Have you ever wondered what the top money masters are doing each and every day to reach the top levels in the industry? Well, you found the perfect podcast. This is Behind the Scenes with Top Money Masters. Brought to you by the International Association of Registered Financial Consultants. Get ready to learn how to explode your marketing, connect and make your clients' process effective, and discover how to build the practice you've always dreamed of. This is Behind the Scenes with Top Money Masters. Hello, everybody. This is Nick Royer, Vice Chairman of the IARFC, and welcome to another episode of the Behind the Scenes with Top Money Masters podcast. And this is powered by the International Association of Registered Financial Consultants. And we're joined today with a real giant in the financial services world. He's a New York Times bestselling author with over 10 books. He's a TV personality, 28 years into hosting his own radio show that airs on stations coast to coast. And he's the founder and co-chairman of, of Edelman Financial Engines. In fact, in 2017, he was a recipient of the IARFC's Lauren Dunton Memorial Award, which is awarded only to those who have made a substantial contribution to the financial services profession and the interests of the financial public. So Rick Edelman is here with us on today's podcast. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Good to be with you. you know, and first off, um, and I want to thank you personally for all that you've done for the IARFC. You've been such a great champion for financial consultants, and I'm honored to, uh, to have you uh, take some time out of your busy schedule to be here with us today. So I appreciate that. It's, it's my pleasure. Uh, happy, happy to join you. Now, I, I'm kind of interested in your journey. Your journey really started back in 1986, I think 1987. So you and your wife, Jean, you, you launched Edelman Financial Services. And I know your goal was to change the traditional practices of the financial industry, but I, I kind of want to dive into that. Why did that? Why was that your mission? What was it about these traditional practices that kind of made you want to take it the angle that you did? Well, we started our practice, frankly, because we got angry. Uh, we were young, newly married, and I was writing in the financial trade press. I was a journalist. And that's what gave me the insight of realizing, you know, we really should get some professional financial help. We wanted to buy a house like other newly married couples. And we didn't know much about me. My background's in journalism, communications, not business and finance. So we hired a local financial planner, a CFP, who um, was referred to us by a friend. And he turned out to be a crook. Um, he oh told God. us to lie. Yeah, he told us to lie on our mortgage application. Um, Go ahead, commit a felony, he said. Um, he didn't say it, but that's what essentially he was telling us to do. And it really made us mad. Uh, and he also charged us $1,500. This was back in the early 1980s. That was a lot of money for us back then. Uh, it's a lot of money today. And uh, so we said, you know what? If this guy can make a living giving that kind of advice, do you think you could make a living by actually helping people instead of hurting them? So we decided that we're going to teach ourselves how this works, and then we're going to share what we've learned with others. And so we both quit our jobs. Gene went to work at Payne Weber in their back office to learn the operations side of the business. I got myself licensed really quickly and started out um, as an independent financial advisor. Within a couple of months, we were working together, uh, and our focus was on financial education. Uh, so we were doing... Uh, elementary school uh, PTA groups, uh, we were going there to do college planning seminars for parents of K through, uh, K through six uh, age groups. And 
that was our beginning, was just teaching people how this works so that um, they could cut through all the nonsense from the dark side of Wall Street. And that, was, that, that remains today the premise of our firm, of helping people understand how money works and how to make it work for them. So starting out, though, I mean, you, it was just you and your wife. And then maybe did you, I don't know, how, how, how did your office actually look when you first started? I mean, it's not, I'm sure it's not the, the 180 offices that you have now, the 330 advisors that you have now. Walk us through how you got to where you are. You started out, it sounds like just you and your wife, small okay. firm, and then you took it from there. Well, yeah, I mean, we didn't have any money. Uh, we didn't have any connections. We were living in the Washington, D.C. area, and yet neither of us went to school there. We didn't have any family there, so we had no social connections there. Uh, and the key was to just start as inexpensively as possible, and so we got uh, a very small office, uh, 10 by 10 square feet, and it oh, held uh, two desks, two L-shaped desks, uh, and we had the desks and the, and the telephone. And that was it. Um, there were this there weren't computers back in the early mid 1980s. Yeah. Um, uh, we were very quick to adapt to computer technology, um, but uh, it was just true bootstrapping, just uh, getting by as best as we could to be able to focus completely on uh, helping people who needed our help uh, and. Um, just one day at a time. Did you focus on just bringing on a couple other advisors and then you were no. teaching them what you did and then that's how you scaled up or? No, no. The way that it worked was just the two of us. You know, we would do these educational college planning seminars for PTA groups and, you know, some of those parents in the room would, you know, offer to become clients or ask if they could uh, get our help. And these were parents who weren't much older than us. They were in their 30s, you know, and small children of their own. Therefore, they didn't have much money. It was a big deal for us to open a $2,000 IRA account yeah. back then. <laughs> Two grand was the limit. You could <laughs> I remember that, yeah. This was about all the money these folks had anyway. And so you open small accounts one by one, and then word of mouth uh, occurs, and you get some referrals. And then because we were doing these college planning seminars so extensively throughout the region, it got the attention of WMAL Radio. And uh, they invited me onto the air uh, for a 15-minute interview. And that interview ended up lasting a full hour on the air. And at the end of the hour, they invited me back because they said that I was generating more phone calls than any other advice-type guest they'd ever had. And so uh, that was generating a lot of new clients for us because we were getting people uh, who were totally confused by this subject of personal finance, which is still brand new. No one ever really heard of the phrase financial planner back in the mid-19, late 1980s. It was all about stock trading. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Louis Rukeyser and Money Magazine, Kiplinger Magazine, that was about it. You know, it wasn't like today with entire television networks devoted to the subject, and thousands of books and millions of seminars around the country. So people were really starved for this information. And when they encountered me on the radio, they, they really uh, shined that, and it really helped us a lot. And eventually, we realized, Gene and I, that we were generating more requests for our services than the two of us were able to accommodate. And mm -hmm. so we decided at that point we needed to hire additional uh, financial planners uh, to assist us. 
And our attitude was just real simple. Uh, we would grow to meet demand and we'll stop growing when the demand stops. Uh, so we didn't have a particular plan to be a certain size. It was strictly a, uh, an issue of serving people who asked for help. We never wanted to turn anybody away. And so we never had an account minimum. Even today, 30 plus years later, our account minimum is only $5,000. So anybody who wants our help gets it, regardless of how much or how little money you have. So we serve multimillionaires. Um, we also serve people who have nothing. Um, and we have done that forever. So we've just added advisors and opened offices slowly over the years to accommodate the needs of our clients. But it basically, it sounds like it was all that crux of how you started with wanting to give that information out, get that financial education, that you weren't going to turn that education down no matter what, what the situation was. You want to get that word out to people, no matter if it was $5,000 or $5 million. Yeah, we're not, we were never focused on us. You know, we never asked, you know, what's in it for us? You know, uh, how much money do you have to, as a barometer to determine whether we would take you as a client? And unfortunately, all too often, that's what most in our industry do. You know, if you don't have a million dollars, they won't talk to you. We find that to be incredibly rude and arrogant. It helps to explain why Wall Street has the bad reputation it has. Rich people helping rich people stay rich. Yeah. Just, you know, not serving the 99% of this country who truly needs the help. It's like a physician saying, I won't help you unless you're a rich, healthy patient because poor, sick people are too much work. <laughs> uh, that's so, exactly the way you look at it. Yeah, yeah that's an awesome analogy. Nobody would tolerate that in medicine, and yet that's the way it is in finance. So our attitude is, if you're not wealthy, we'll help you become wealthy. And if you don't even want to become wealthy, you just want to get your kids through college and care for your aging parents and give yourself a comfortable retirement, we'll help you do that. Yeah. For, for millions of Americans, that would be the American dream. And so we're, we help anybody who wants our help, and we encourage other advisors to do the same. Because if the more you help others the better off you're going to do. That's what capitalism is. That's what makes America great. You can do well by doing good. Now, 28 years later, though, you see, that, that was the beginnings of the radio show when you had that 15-minute interview. Right. So now, 28 years later, you're still doing your radio show. You're across multiple markets. And I know a lot of uh, financial consultants maybe you know, who are with the IARFC, they maybe have radio shows or they've contemplated starting up a radio show, they don't know if they should do it, or they don't even know maybe how to talk about it or what message they should be saying. What, what is your thoughts on radio now? If somebody's looking at it saying, nah, I don't know if I should do it or not, or, or maybe I need to be more efficient with the show that I have. What, what would be a few tips? Yeah, I pretty much invented the space. When I was invited by WMAL onto the air, they, nobody anywhere had advisors or practitioners, whether it's in law or accounting or real estate or mortgage or whatever, there was no such thing as advisor-based programming. So I pretty much invented the medium. And uh, I'm a member of the union. I'm a member of SAG-AFTRA. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm talent <laughs> in radio jargon. Uh, and they pay me to do the show. Um, that's not the way it is anymore. After my success became apparent, the radio industry began to realize, wow, we could probably do lots of these shows and we could probably get these, these uh, advisors, these uh, experts to pay to be on the air. And it became known as brokered airtime. 
And so today, most of these shows that are on the air are actually infomercials, yeah. where the advisors pay uh, to get on the airways, and instead of paying for a 60-second ad, they're paying for a 60-minute show. Mm -hmm. It's typically either late night or on a weekend. It's a very profitable business model for the radio industry. The question is whether it's a profitable approach for the advisors. Uh, in my experience, there are now hundreds, probably even thousands of advisors around the country hosting their own radio shows, and um, very few of them last. Advisors discover that they are very expensive, that they take a substantial amount of time and effort to produce, and that they don't generate the business return, the, the number of clients or leads or assets or whatever the metric is they use. It doesn't generate a lot of ROI for them as much as they were expecting. A lot of folks have asked me over the years, how do I do it? How do we make it work for us? Uh, to be honest, being a radio talk show host is a very different skill set from being a financial advisor. And this is what most advisors don't understand. You can't merely be a financial advisor sitting or standing in front of a microphone. You actually have to be an entertainer. Being a radio talk show host is a different skill set. I had this advantage because my degree is in communications and I studied extensively radio, TV, film, journalism, advertising, public relations. Uh, and so I had this tremendous head start or benefit in being able to do this well. So it has to be informative, of course. It has to be educational. But it must be much more than that. It must also be interesting and entertaining. Yeah. And I, I hate to say it this way, but the vast majority of financial advisors are neither. Yeah. No, I, I, one of my friends, uh, you actually met when you were at the Biltmore, when you received the Lauren Dunton Award. Uh, you, you met Coach Pete Deruda, who does a radio show across the country, too. And he actually uses the term edutainment yeah. as, as you got to educate and but entertain. So edutainment is, is the key. And right. so that's what you, you figured out a way to do it. But most people, they're thinking, I'm just going to educate. And it ends up being a textbook on the air. And well, that's not yeah. fun for anybody to listen to. And Nick, I'll take it a step further. Their, their attitude isn't even to educate. Their attitude is that they're there to sell. And it literally comes off like an infomercial. They're doing nothing but bragging and touting whatever product it is that they're bragging about. They're throwing out the phone number every 20 seconds. They're just making it all about them. And it is awful radio. And they discover that people don't tune into it. They don't respond to it. And it's an awful lot of work to produce a show. For my two-hour weekly show, I probably spend six to eight hours in pre-production. Yeah. Uh, then the recording of the show itself. Um, and then probably another four hours of post-production. So it's um, a day a week, essentially, yeah. Yeah. Uh, day and a half a week to produce a two-hour radio show. And you can hear the difference uh, between a show that's well-produced and a show that isn't. Uh, and I, was, I had the, the, the honor um, of appearing on the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, I was on Oprah five times. Uh, and... You know, it's, it's a one-hour program that Oprah used to do. And for each of the shows that I was on, I was in Chicago for a week. Jeez. Uh, of 14-hour days for five days to produce her one-hour program. 
and that is why her show was so astonishingly successful. It was brilliantly produced, and it looked it, but it was a huge amount of work. And for someone who thinks that they can just, oh, I'm going to sign a contract to go on the air, and I'll show up in the studio five minutes before it starts, discover quickly it isn't what they expected, and they, it never lasts. And uh, so, yeah, there are lots of people who try, and very, very few who succeed in doing it on a sustained basis. So whereas when you first started out, you were like the only person, you kind of started the profession of radio for a financial advisor, and now you can turn on a station, you might have six or seven shows on a Saturday. It's become a lot more, there's a lot more saturation in that than there was when you first started. So if somebody, let's say a new advisor is just starting out and from a marketing front and they're saying, okay, well, you know, I need to get my word out there. You know, I'm a financial consultant. I'm trying to grow my practice. What marketing strategies would you recommend for them to start? Yeah, I would not recommend that you do what I did. And <laughs> Because it really can't be done. I mean, like I said, I'm a member of SAG-AFTRA. I'm talent in the radio industry. My show's in 68 markets. We have a million listeners a week. I would not recommend that you try to do what I did because, as you pointed out, Nick, the market, the airways are now saturated with yeah. wannabes trying to do this. It's also very expensive and very time-consuming. So I would not recommend that you attempt to be a broadcaster. Instead, if I were starting out today brand new, I wouldn't try to be a broadcaster. I would instead be a narrowcaster, meaning I wouldn't try to be all things to all people. When I'm doing a radio show to a million people, I have everybody in America listening, every type of person, young, old, black, white, every race, every gender, every income level, every experience level from every geography, all kinds of occupations. There, there's just a very broad cross-section of the American population listening to me. Instead, I would choose, if I were starting out today, the one very narrow audience that I was most interested in reaching. And you need to decide what that is. What, who are the kind of people you want to spend your time with? Yeah. Are you an avid uh, race car enthusiast? Uh, do you love to garden? Do you love to cook? Do you, uh, do you like the idea of serving divorcees, widows, executives, athletes? Um, entrepreneurs, people just starting out, people just starting over. I mean, what is it that you want your niche to be? Select that one tiny little niche. And if you decide that I'm going to be a, the financial planner for plumbers, great. You become the expert on plumbers. Everything associated with the plumbing industry, with all the issues of running a plumbing business, understand who these people are, the financial challenges they're facing, and you start writing articles for the plumbing magazines. You go to the plumbing trade shows. You become known as the plumbing guy or gal. I, uh, my brother had surgery not long ago on his thumb. Mm. And he went to a surgeon who only operates on thumbs. They always exist? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I said. I was like, what are you talking about? I can understand he only operates on fingers or hands, but thumbs? And if you have a thumb problem, this is the, the surgeon you're going to go to. And if it's not your thumb, he doesn't help you. Talk about a niche. And we all know that the medical profession is highly specialized. The legal profession is highly specialized. The accounting profession is highly specialized. But for some dumb reason, many financial planners still think they need to be all things to all people. It's time for us to adopt the level of specialization that other professions have already mastered. So decide who you're going to serve and how you're going to serve them and only serve them. And if they're not a plumber, say no. Uh, other than pro bono services where you should say yes to everybody. 
So, um, so I would argue that specialization and narrow casting is what I would recommend for people just trying to start out on their own. Hey there, this is Nick Royer. We'll be coming right back to the podcast in a quick moment. If you're wondering how you can separate yourself from the hundreds of thousands of other financial consultants out there, take a little advice from me. I've been in the financial industry for now 19 years, and I can tell you that one of the best things I ever did for my business was to become a registered financial consultant and then eventually become a master registered financial consultant. Having that credential behind my name has helped show that I'm an elite consultant, helping me gain trust and credibility with the people that I help. Find out more about how you can become a master registered financial consultant or even a registered financial consultant. Just go to www.iarfc.org. That's www.iarfc.org. Now back to the show. Let, let's let's go to you know the the uh, the appointment process. So you're talking about marketing, getting down to your niche. But when it comes to the appointment process, I find that uh, a lot of people they're kind of uh, they, they're, they don't have a defined appointment process either. So whereas you're talking about having a defined avatar client for your marketing, what about having a defined appointment process? Do you teach that? Do you say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Everybody's going to follow this process. Yes. One meeting, one, two, three, and so on and so forth. So it's all about scale. You have to establish a systematized process for, the, for every aspect of your practice. Not merely the appointment methodology for your clients. Uh, it begins from the very first contact with, a, with a, an individual all the way through the entire client relationship that lasts decades. And so the attitude that Gene and I had from the very beginning was that we weren't interested in doing something for a single individual. Our attitude was if we can't do this for a thousand people, then we don't want to do it at all. It has to be highly uh, replicatable, yeah. highly scalable, uh, because you can't afford to constantly reinvent everything all the time. So over the years, we have learned the importance of scalability, consistency, replication, and the biggest, most successful companies in America do this. Look at Starbucks. You know, no matter what Starbucks you go into, you know what your experience will be like. Highly consistent, highly professional, very high quality. And that's what we like to do. We're the Starbucks of the financial planning business. And this doesn't mean that it's an automation process. It doesn't mean that there's no personal uh, attention or, or uh, advice. It's just the opposite. What it means is that by automating and systematizing the grunt elements, the parts that don't really matter a whole lot, um, the planners in our practice, can focus extensively on the parts that do demand individualization and unique advice for the individual client. But they do it within a framework. So there's a common philosophy in the firm, a common methodology in the firm, and a complete consistency in the delivery of both of those. And that allows the clients to enjoy a much more uh, high-quality experience. It allows the planners to operate with a far higher level of efficiency, which allows them to serve more clients at lower cost so that everybody's happy. The clients are thrilled with their experience and the planners are very content with their daily lives as advisors in the office and with their compensation because they serve more clients than the typical advisor can serve and so they can earn higher incomes. 
which, which leads to greater uh, tenure with the planners. Virtually none of our planners ever leave once they join us because the situation they have is so good compared to anywhere else. And the clients love it as well because of the level of uh, the quality of service and attention they're getting from their advisors. So the key is scalability. So when you're asking what kind of appointment process should you have, you need to set up the appointment methodology, the planning process that you think works best for you, which is sustainable and scalable for as many clients as you hope to serve. If you're only going to serve one client, and I know advisors who have one client, a single family office client, all right, scale doesn't matter so much there. But if you want 100 clients, you better be able to do 100 things one time mm-hmm. as opposed to doing them 100 times 100 different ways. You'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah, you're doing something on that first visit the same way as every time virtually. They're walking through that process. It's not that you're changing that first visit for whoever walks in the door. It's the same thing in a medical practice or a legal practice or an accounting practice. When you book the appointment with the doctor, you don't talk to the doctor. You talk to a member of the staff. Now it's on an online site. And when you get into the office, you don't meet the doctor. You greet at the front desk staff, and then you see the nurse for most of the time. You're there for an hour, but you're with the nurse 45 minutes, and then the doctor walks in for 10 minutes, does what the doctor needs to do, and that's how they run their practice. I'm not saying we need to replicate that methodology. My point is they do it the same way for every patient. Uh, When you get your tax return prepared by your accountant, they send you a form to fill out to collect all the data. They have a process internally for getting that data into the computer system, for them to review the tax return, to go through the individualized advice as needed. It's a methodology, a system. Otherwise, they could never prepare as many returns as they do within the narrow confines of the tax season. Mm -hmm. Planners need to operate with the same level of business savvy and operational approach that other professionals do. Yeah, I love that concept. I, what, I, what I got from that is when you said it's all about scale and look at it as it's like a Starbucks. Uh, you, like you said, you can go to McDonald's and you know the system, you know the process, you know the experience. And I think uh, if we look at things from that lens, uh, we'll become more efficient as advisors as well. So, okay, I, I got a lightning round. I, got, I know we got, only got a couple more minutes, but I got a lightning round of just a couple questions here. So let's say a new advisor, just starting out, they, they come in, they're, they're, they're walking in your door, they sit down for the very first time, they're brand new and they're saying, okay, what, you know, what, what do I do? What were the top three things, Rick, that I could do to help me out? What would you say? Well, first of all, I tell them to come back in 10 years. Uh, in our firm, we don't <laughs> bring on brand new advisors. Okay, them. okay. <laughs> but for someone who is starting out in their profession, uh, you know, I had to invent this. Uh, I was part of that generation that invented the financial planning industry. And Investment News just cited the 50th anniversary of the financial planning profession, which which Lauren Dutton invented in that Mm -hmm. meeting in Chicago in 1969. And there are 20 people that Investment News cited as the people who helped shape the industry. And I was honored to be one of those 20 people. So I had, like the other 19 of us, we all had to start our own financial planning firms because there was no financial planning firm for us to go work at. But today... There are now hundreds of established financial planning firms, and some of us, uh, maybe a dozen or two, are multi-billion dollar enterprises uh, with, with tens, billion, tens of billions, in our case, 200 billion in assets under management. You now can get a college degree in financial planning. That wasn't the case when I started. And so today, I would say to that financial planner who's just getting started, are you sure that you want to start your own business? as opposed to joining a successful practice that's already in place. 
Because if you're going to start your own business, you're going to spend a lot of your time doing things that have nothing to do with financial planning. Gene and I spent a huge amount of time looking for office space, yeah. buying telephones and computer systems, negotiating contracts with vendors, hiring staff, managing them, dealing with uh, legal agreements, with Headaches. compliance issues, operations, trading. None of that has anything to do with serving the financial planning client. It's all back office front work. Got to be done, but doesn't mean it's got to be done by you. So ask yourself, are you sure you're better off by starting your own practice as opposed to joining in a large established firm that lets you do what your passion has you doing? In other words, do you want to be a, a physician opening your own medical practice or do you want to be an ER doc where you just wait for the ambulance to show up with the next patient? Right, exactly. So now take it to somebody who's maybe been in the practice for a while. Okay, somebody who's maybe been in the practice, they got their own firm, maybe 15 years, 20 years, they've been doing their own thing, they have their own clientele. Maybe they've reached a, a spot where it's like, man, I need to reach to the next level, but I don't know how to get there. Any advice for that, for that group of person? Well, I think they do know how to get there. They're just unwilling to do it. And I, and I get that too, because for you to grow your practice, for you, a lot of advisors, they get to a point where they plateau. They've gotten mm -hmm. to a point with right. X number of clients, X number of assets, and, they, and they're so busy, they can't add on anything new or they can't add on another client or another dollar of assets without growing. And how do you grow? You've got to add people. You've got to add planners. You've got to add support staff. You've got to add infrastructure. You're going to spend money in more office space. You've got to buy more computers and telephones. You've got to hire HR people and compliance people and legal people. You've got to hire back office people and finance accounting people. You got to hire managers and on and on and on. And all of a sudden, you're not spending a whole lot of your time being a planner anymore. You're now running a planning practice, which is a very different thing. And so you neither need to decide that you want to go do that, spending that time and money in that effort, or it's time for you to sell your practice and merge with another practice or be acquired by a larger practice uh, and recognize that being someone with your own shingle ain't what it's used to be. It's not as much fun as it used to be. There's now far greater competition. There's far greater regulation. There's far greater technological impact and uh, much uh, new emphasis on uh, reduced margins because fees are getting compressed everywhere, partly because of regulation and competition. This is why we're seeing massive consolidation in the industry as advisors are saying, I love being an advisor. I hate being in the advisory business. Mm -hmm. And so let's merge with others or get acquired so I can return to just doing what I love, which is serving clients. You mentioned the word tech, tech technological advancements and different types of things just then. Do you think robo-advisors, I mean, we've heard that term now for the last couple of years. A lot of people think, oh man, that's going to be the end of this industry as a profession. What is your take on robo-advisors and technology and how that will shape the financial services industry? And maybe... Are there any advantages to it for us? Yeah, no, it's not, it's not the threat that you think it is, uh, or, uh, that many think it is, but it is a thing. Uh, what, what a lot of folks don't know, if I were to say, well, who are the, the biggest and oldest robo-advisors? Who are they? Well, most, a lot of folks would ordinarily say Wealthfront or Betterment. The biggest and oldest robo-advisor is me, uh, Edelman Financial Engines. We are the biggest and oldest. Uh, Financial Engines was started over 20 years ago, twice yeah. as old as anybody else and has $175 billion in assets under management. Serving uh, 401k plans across the country, we now serve more than 1.2 million Americans in their 401k plans across the US. So I'm not at all 
afraid of robo uh, uh, before we did our merger with financial engines i created edelman online which was one of the earliest robo advisors because i wanted to see how it worked and what it was all like and here's what it comes down to the people who are interested in working with a robo advisor meaning online advice with no human intervention are the same people who go to vanguard or who go to Schwab or E-Trade. These do it are do-it-yourself advisors who don't want to pay the fee of a financial advisor. These are do-it-yourself investors. And so they're not, the, the robo-advisors are not a threat. Um, but what's happening, and we're the best example of this at Edelman Financial Engines, that what's happening is that the pure robo-advisors are recognizing that they're unable to serve the client's needs in its totality because all they do is investment management online. And the humans are recognizing that we lack the technological resources to give the client the greatest online experience because we're high touch, whereas the robos are high tech. And that's why Edelman Financial Services merged with Financial Engines, the number one biggest high tech advisor with the number one biggest high touch advisor. So you're and melding the two together merging the two together so that on the Edelman Financial Services side, we're now able to deliver our clients some of the most fabulous online tools. And on the financial engine side, they're able to provide their clients with human advisors, helping them with aspects of their planning beyond 401k. So it's a wonderful marriage. And this is what the entire industry is going to experience. So it's no longer going to be an us versus them, a robo versus brick and mortar. It's going to be everybody doing everything for the benefit of everyone. And that's the future of the way it's going to be. So if you aren't staying up to date on the technological innovations, and if you aren't providing your clients with the most up-to-date technological opportunities, you're going to get left behind because clients are going to say, why should I work with you when your services are not nearly as good or robust or diverse as what I can get elsewhere? Yeah. Now, was that the crux maybe in a little way of your ninth book? Uh, I know it was a New York Times bestseller, The Truth About, the F about Your Future. Yes. So, the, the, the reason I wrote that book, I spent eight years researching it, uh, is my deep dive into my study of exponential technologies, robotics, AI, nanotech, biotech, bioinformatics, neuroscience, 3D printing, big data. All of these technologies are revolutionizing virtually every aspect of life as we know it on the planet. And there are massive implications for personal finance. And most financial planners are oblivious to all of this, and therefore the advice they're giving their clients is often antiquated, out of date, and not focused on the future that the clients are really going to have. So this book is hugely important because it helps you understand the nature of these technologies and the implication for financial planning. Everything involving college, career, homeownership, life expectancy, estate planning, and of course, investment management. So we are working very hard to making sure our clients' financial plans reflect the future they're going to have. And we're doing so in innovative ways that I think are far ahead of what most financial planners are doing for their clients. What would you say, I think this is something you touched on in this book, but what would you say to a financial advisor who's saying, yeah, you know, I'm only going to plan on you, let, Mr. and Mrs. Client, I'm only going to plan on you living to age 85 in my financial plan. I think that that planner is probably criminally negligent. Um, I, I cannot comprehend how they could justify that. First of all, the IRS says life expectancy is 89 right now. Okay. So to suggest that your client is only going to live to 85 is, I believe, uh, insane. 
if you talk to the folks that I spend time with, and if you read the material I have in, in my book, The Truth About Your Future, the futurists, scientists, MDs, PhDs, physicists, astronauts, all these folks are showing clear evidence that life expectancy by the time you are 85 will probably be 105 to 115. Um, to assume that your client's going to be retiring at 65, dead at 85, what are you going to do when that client runs out of money at age 95 mm -hmm. uh, and still has another 10 years of life to go because of advances in medical science? So financial planners need to rethink their financial planning paradigm. Uh, go ahead and rerun your financial planning model, this time assuming the client lives to 105, and watch what happens to your financial planning projections. I think you'll discover that the advice you're giving your client isn't going to work. And that's why I brought that up because I remember you mentioning that and there were, there were gasps from the audience that, oh, well, that's too long. And I'm thinking like you that I'm seeing people getting this age. You know, they're living, they're, we have clients over 100. So if it's happening now in the next 20 years, it's, it's going to be normal. And so I think we have to, as an industry, plan for that. And I, you know, you're a champion of that and I commend you for it because it, it need, the word needs to be out. Lastly, real quick, the, the, the Squirrel Manifesto. I am really interested. This is your new, your 10th book, right? Yes. 10th book. So Squirrel Manifesto, I, I know it was, it was something where it was geared towards kids and, and was spending and saving for their future and giving to charity. What was the, what, what was the uh, three o'clock in the morning thought maybe that said, man, I'm going to write this book called The Squirrel Manifesto and this is the topic I'm going to cover? It was inspired, uh, I would say, prodded by a really good friend of mine, Ken Dykewald, uh, the founder of AgeWave, one of the nation's leading, probably the leading gerontologist. And uh, Ken has written a couple of children's books and implored me to, that, that we needed to write our own on the subject of money. And so with Ken's inspiration, uh, Gene and I did that. Um, the, uh, we, we had a fabulous uh, illustrator, Dave Zabowski, who is a former Disney animator. Uh, the, the book is lavishly illustrated, much more so than a typical children's book. And it's uh, a very simple message that we're giving to four to eight-year-olds, the first children's book we've ever written. And it's really designed to teach really young kids the most important aspects of money and what it means. The importance that, you, that with money comes opportunity, the opportunity to enjoy what money can do for you. So when a child gets money from a gift or an allowance, let them spend some of it. Let them see the joy of having money and the pleasure it can provide. But at the same time, implore children to recognize that you can't spend 100% of the money you have because you can't afford everything that you want. You might, want to, you know, you might be able to buy that, that candy or that comic book, but you can't buy a bicycle or an Xbox. So in addition to spending a little, save a little and learn the benefit and the power of compound growth and deferred gratification. And third, recognize that with the opportunity of money comes the obligation of money to help those who are in need. So spend a little, save a little, and give a little um, to help people understand that uh, money is a community. Uh, it is not all about us individually. And if we can teach our children these basic lessons at very young ages, uh, they'll grow up money smart uh, with a very healthy relationship about money. And so the book has in, in the back of it a grown-up guide to the Squirrel Manifesto to teach parents and grandparents how to have healthy money conversations with 
uh, even very young children. Well, I think that's awesome. I mean, people can get the book on Amazon, right? Amazon is now selling the book for about 10 bucks. Uh, so available at your favorite bookseller and at Amazon uh, for 10 bucks, the Squirrel Manifesto. Yeah. So if folks, you know, we're going to wrap up uh, this call and I appreciate Rick for all your time here today. And we're talking about all this because being the go-to financial consultant in your area really means doing things a little bit differently. Hopefully you can hear the passion that Rick's bringing, you know, and how he structured things and how he started from what was a hundred square foot office into now where you have 180 different offices. So you've definitely done phenomenal in spreading the word and getting that education out to people. And that's what this podcast is about too. So look at, listen back to this podcast over and over, jot down a few action items and things to implement, you know, go check out Rick's books at amazon.com. And there's also great resources on the IARFC website as well, which is www.iarfc.org. And if you haven't already, you can check out how to become a RFC and MRFC like Rick and myself are. And so, Rick, again, I, I want to uh, you know, thank you for being here today. As we're kind of wrapping up the call, is there any last-minute thought or, or um, you know, maybe tip that you'd like to throw out? Uh, just what we started with earlier, that remember that it's not all about you. The more you focus on your clients, uh, the better off you'll be. And uh, to not have any requirements or, or hurdles that people have to go through in order for you to, be, for you to help them. Yeah. Be willing to help anyone who's willing to ask for your help, and the whole country will be better off. Have, have, the, uh, have the heart of a teacher, right? And go mm -hmm. out and educate. So appreciate your time again, Rick. And that's, this is going to do it for this episode of Behind the Scenes with the Top Money Masters. Don't forget to keep your eyes open for the next podcast coming out next month. And until then, take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes with Top Money Masters podcast. Catch new episodes every month to discover what the top financial consultants are doing to be the elite and how you can do it. To learn more about how to become an elite financial consultant, find out how you can become a registered financial consultant or a master registered financial consultant. Just go to IARFC.org. That's IARFC.org.